We are in Hosea chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10, that's in the Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament. But if you could, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, just take a moment and go go to Hosea chapter 10. If you've been here for, well, actually a fairly long time, you know that I've been going through the book of Hosea and explaining what's going on in the book, right? Good. So uh, just to remind you, there are a few things that it's talking about. The first three chapters talk about a marriage relationship between Hosea and his unfaithful wife. And this is what God uses for the remainder of the book as an image of his relationship with his people, Israel. Where he is a good and faithful husband. He has chosen a bride from among the people to love and to honor and to be with, and she has been unfaithful. And Hosea is about God's visceral reaction, the just God reacting to the unfaithfulness of his bride and the people with whom she has been unfaithful to God with. So when we get to chapter 10, I've told you a bunch of things. I've explained a couple of things that are probably going to be important here. One of them, and probably the most important when you're reading a prophet, especially an Old Testament prophet, is that God's wrath, remember that God's wrath has a very good basis. It's a good thing. The statement is that ultimately evil does not win. Keep that in mind. When you, I I wouldn't say that just for this sermon, but especially for this sermon, but when you get out into the real world, keep this in mind. Evil does not win. Ultimately speaking, regardless of the evils we see around us, regardless of all the things that are going wrong around us, evil does not win. That's written in the black and white of all of the prophets, and most especially in the prophet Hosea. And that's good news as long as you think other people are evil. Um, You guys have been noticing that there's a federal election going on right now, haven't you? I mean, you know, you've seen these signs around, little red signs and blue signs and green signs and yellow signs all over the city. And I've been watching TV from time to time, and the ads that I see on TV remind me of, uh, remind me of some of the message that you see in Hosea chapter 10, especially the second half that we're going to be dealing with today. Um, a couple of election cycles ago, the Rick Morser Report did a spoof uh, ad. And it talked about how this candidate, uh, one party is talking about the other party's leader candidate and saying, he murders people. He drinks blood. He has a dragon in his backyard. You shouldn't vote for him. He's evil. And then, of course, you notice that happening with almost every ad you see. Uh, uh, Apparently, Justin Trudeau is evil, and Andrew Scheer is evil, and uh, uh, I don't even remember the names of all the party leaders. Elizabeth May is crazy and evil, and uh, uh, and Singh? Yeah. He's, he's you know, kind of foreign-looking and evil. So apparently, everybody 
that's running for federal office in Canada is evil by somebody's standards. And I mean, this doesn't just happen on the political stage. I don't know if you've, you, you've had this happen in your own life. You know, we have this kind of assumption, it seems to be, I'm okay, you're okay, but that guy who disagrees with us, he's really not okay. You know, um, I agree with you, so we assume that I'm a good person and you're a good person. And, you know, the people who are generally like us, we're all kind of good people. But that person over there that disagrees with us, he's evil. He's not just wrong. He's not just, uh, uh, you know, uninformed, uneducated, possibly, you know, logically not quite correct. No, he's a terrible person. I think there's a dark reason for that, though. The fact is, if we look at ourselves honestly, and uh, as I was talking to Brother Derek during the time between Sunday school and now, we don't often have a lot of introspection time, so we don't often look at ourselves very much. But if we do look at ourselves, we know that there are things about us that we don't find very good. And the easiest way to react to that, there's two ways you can do it. You can try to find ways to become a better person, which, you know, is actually very difficult. And honestly, I'd go so far as to say outside of Christ, impossible. Or we can just simply say, well, at least I'm better than that guy. It's even better if they disagree and they're showing us something wrong about ourselves. You see this in relationships all the time. Boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, parent, child, doesn't matter. Happens all the time. Somebody tells you, you're doing this thing wrong. And you get the knee-jerk reaction. The immediate thing bursts up into your heart and it says, yeah, but you're not very good yourself. Which is a non-sequitur if you want to deal with logic. That has nothing to do with whether or not you've done something wrong. But more to the point, it's something that allows us to ignore good things that are told us without actually having to deal with them. And the really cool part, since we're believers and we believe that everybody has a problem, that we all are born in sin and we have sinfulness, it's always true. I mean, regardless of the person, if you tell me something, if you try to correct me in any way, I can always come up with something that you're wrong about, unless you're Jesus. Any of you Jesus? Good. I can always find something wrong with you, something that I can say is terrible, so I don't have to listen to you. And I'm always right, because there are things that are wrong with all of us. But the darkness of that is pretty simple. Remember I told you, evil does not win. I didn't say comparative evil does not win. I said evil does not win. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, the evil that there is in the world, well, the easiest example is actually me. And if that's the case... My method of ignoring evil by calling you guys evil is actually even more bad. I'm doing what we're going to see in a few moments is a double iniquity. I'm placing myself as holier than other people, and I actually know that I'm not holy. So I'm both 
being evil in the original sense, and I'm lying about my evil. I'm being a hypocrite. And that's actually one of the things we see here. But that's not the only message we see in the text today. You see, where I'm going, ultimately speaking, this is my goal, if we get there, I want to show that in God, not only is his wrath good because it defeats evil, but for those on whom God sets his affections, God's anger against sin leads not to destruction, but, and here's a $5 word, sanctification. God's opposition to sin has a different result for people on whom he has set his affections. It's immediately that we would be made more holy. And ultimately, that we would be glorified with him where we can enjoy him forever. We are As objects of God's goodness, God's wrath does good things in our lives. But I'm going to have to show that in the text. So let's turn to the text. We're going to be reading from uh, verses uh, 9 to about 15 of chapter 10. From the days of Gabeah you have sinned, O Israel. There you have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them, and when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap for yourselves steadfast love, break up the fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors." Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arabal in the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus shall it be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. This is probably not a text that's going to be on coffee mugs anytime soon. It isn't a positive text, but there is some very good, very amazing things that you can see here. But first of all, we need to actually, I've got four points, and the first point is going to be this. There is a reason that God doesn't destroy all evil right now. There is a reason that God doesn't destroy evil right now, and it's a pretty simple reason. If God was to destroy all evil right now, none of us would be standing. If God were to destroy evil now, none of us would be standing. I'm repeating this because it's something that we need to kind of internalize. My atheist friends can often ask me, why does a good God allow for evil to exist in this world? And I mean, there are a lot of very interesting answers. There's a Large philosophy course you can do about this. And if you don't want to buy me nachos, I'll talk to you for hours about that. 
But one of the main central answers that we should probably know and we should probably be ready with straight from the get-go, if God were to actually destroy all evil, there wouldn't be anybody to see the result, at least no humans. I mean, God would still be happy, but, you know, your atheist friend would not survive if God actually punished evil immediately. That's just the simple fact. Because in a real sense, we are evil. That's what he's talking about in verses 9 and 10. He says, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel, where there they have continued. If you're interested, that's from Judges 19, that passage where there's a group in Gibeah. They had do something really horrible. I'm not going to explain it. It's kind of graphic. But let's just say Sodom and Gomorrah got away with a lot less than Gabeah did. And as a result, they were evil. And there it says, Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gabeah? And you can catch the implication there pretty easily, can't you? The war against the unjust. If God levels a war against injustice, the unjust fall, including the people of Gibeah. Though, remember back in Hosea 8.2, I told you that one of the problems that these guys had is that they honestly believed they were being godly, good people. They believed that they knew God. And yet, in the midst of saying that they knew God, somehow they had determined to do evil in their hearts. As the entire book is talking about, they had walked away from God. They decided that God was less valuable than some other God of their own creation. And so they had become deluded. And the worst part about it, it wasn't a delusion that was put upon them from outside. It was a delusion that they had themselves. Because, again, and this is the dark side of what I was talking about. They had engaged in the idea of comparative righteousness. That because I am comparatively more righteous than the person next to me, therefore I am righteous. I mean, there's always people like this. I mean, okay, I can say that I am more righteous than the person who is sleeping around on his wife. Why? I don't have a wife, so I can't sleep around on her. But I'm more righteous. I can imagine that I'm more righteous than he is. I mean, some pe- the Pharisees in the time of Jesus would say that they were more righteous than the sinners of, his, of their time because they didn't work on the Sabbath. Why didn't they work on the Sabbath? They didn't have to. They had enough money. I mean, that's, that's what happens in a lot of cases. It happens even today. I mean, some people will say that those who have to work on Sunday are, you know, actually not as holy as I am because they're working on Sunday. Well, yes, but they do actually need to pay rent, and you may have a little bit easier time paying rent since you paid off your house. But because that we can do this, because we can imagine that we are more holy than somebody else, because we can find one or two ways in which I'm a better person, we can convince ourselves that, no, in fact, I'm pretty good. It's why churches are important and why churches are also not very popular among people. If you go to church, you're going to run into a whole bunch of people 
who are both sinners and, yes, they are less holy than you in some ways, but they're also, some of them, more holy than you in some ways, and they're going to actually talk to you about it in a real church. My brothers and sisters, when you see me in sin, I know that there are some of you who care enough about me that you will actually tell me, Steve, that was sin. You probably should think about that. I know that when I talk to you about the things that I'm struggling with, I know that you will actually pray for me. That's what a church does. But that undercuts the idea of being comparatively righteous. And most of us, most of our society, honestly, most of our own hearts desire to be seen, at least in our own eyes, as righteous. And the message of the Bible is that you're not. Jesus is. So the people of Israel had decided that they were more righteous. And that's what we, and then they had fallen into what they called here a double iniquity. You see that there in verse, uh, let me see, verse 10. When they are bound up for their double iniquity. You see the problem? They, as I said, they had first of all decided that they were righteous. And then they had decided that they were more righteous than other people. So they had become first unrighteous and un, uh, unholy by seeking after other gods. And second of all, they pretended they hadn't sought after other gods and that they were more righteous than other people. They imagined that the iniquity wouldn't pass over them, that God would never punish them because they were holy, even though they weren't. That was one point from the text. Second point from the text I think is important. It's down in verse 13. Injustice is the active result of trusting in the wrong things. It says in verse 13, You have plowed iniquity and have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Notice these aren't separated things. These are related things. The iniquity, the injustice, eating the fruit of lies is because they have trusted in their own way and in the multitude of their warriors. Wrong belief, wrong understandings, wrong trusts, wrong faith. Faith in the wrong things will lead us to evil. I don't think I need to explain that too often, but just a couple of examples. If I trust in money over God, I will find myself unable to give where God calls me to give. I will be unwilling to meet responsibilities to people in kindness because I need to make more money. I may start to lie to other people. I may start be doing sharp business practices to make other people give me more money because I trust in money. My God is my money. I need money or I'm going to feel like I'm not acceptable. And so I will start sinning to seek money. It happens with other things. It can happen with your significant other. I love my spouse so much, I love my girlfriend so much that I'm going to do everything I can to keep him or her happy. 
I'm going to do all kinds of things, whether or not it's godly stuff or ungodly stuff. My husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, they might be lost in sin, but I'm not going to correct them because if I correct them, they might leave me. And I need them. I trust in them. They are my God. Children, parents, I will never cause my child to think poorly of me, so I'm going to try to be the coolest parent I can be. I don't want my dad or my mom to dislike me, so I will do everything that they tell me to do, whether what they tell me to do is ungodly or not. If you trust in the wrong things, you will end up in injustice. It's just going to happen. And that's what happened to the people of Israel. It was because they trusted in their own way and in their warriors that they plowed iniquity and they reaped injustice. So that's point two. Point three. And this is kind of the important thing that I started with when it comes to God's wrath. God defeats injustice. Verses 14 and 15. Therefore the tumult of war shall come and arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel in the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. So shall it be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At the dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. That sounds horrible if you're Bethel. That sounds really, really bad if you happen to be the person who's unjust. But think about the people who, against whom they're being unjust. I think they might be pretty joyful to hear that. You see, if we are correct, and I, by the Spirit of God and, and through the Word, I think we are, there will come a day when justice will reign everywhere, where there will be no such thing as injustice. That doesn't happen because God will rule all directly. We will be changed and transformed if, our, if we are in Christ, and we will be the kinds of people that love God. Society will no longer be able to set standards for us that are unjust because society will matter a lot less than Jesus does. There will come a day when justice will reign, when injustice will be gone, when I will no longer be able to turn on a television or whatever they have in heaven to get news and see horrible things that people are doing to other people because it doesn't happen anymore. Everybody praises Jesus now. There will come a time when God will defeat injustice. But if we're deluded, if we believe that we are godly people when we're not, if we believe that we're being holy when we're not, if we believe that holiness actually dwells in ourselves because it doesn't, when injustice is defeated, so are we because we're unjust. And injustice is being defeated. But then, that's pretty much a downer. There is a point four. 
that you can see pretty clearly in this text. God corrects his people. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Jacob must plow. Now, be careful here. That sounds kind of bad. Ephraim likes to do this one thing, but God is going to put him in a in a binding and make him do something that he doesn't want to do, namely plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. But get what, this is, what, the, what he says here. He doesn't say, I'm going to put the, pl- the thing on his neck. I'm not going to put him in a yoke so that he can feel terrible about himself and so that I can feel great. He does it for a reason. He does it for the reason that as opposed to verse 13 where you, know, you plowed iniquity, reaped injustice, eaten the fruit of lies... Instead, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come, not that he may punish you, not that he may defeat you, not that he may destroy you, that he might reign righteousness upon you. So get the situation here. God has wrath on injustice and evil and sin. It's just. It's necessary. And we are all unjust in in ourselves. And yet, for those God has put on his affections in this case, Ephraim, His opposition, his steadfast, settled hatred of sin translates into something different. It goes through the acceptance and love of God and changes into correction. God works to purge his people of the sin that kills them. The Lord is literally curing what's killing them. He's still defeating sin. He's still opposed to sin. He still has no truck with sin. But instead of killing them, instead of facing them with the punishment that is richly deserved, he finds a way to use them and to bring them closer to himself, to give them an opportunity for righteousness. Yes, there is a cost. Yes, there are things that are going to need to be done here, but the end result is not their destruction, but their salvation. And I I use cost kind of strangely here. I mean, if I have cancer, terminal cancer, and I have an amazing surgeon who's going to cut it out with absolutely no problems, will be able to get it 100% before it metastasizes and kills me, the cost of that is at the very least going to be, I will lose my cancer. I guess that's kind of a cost. If something is killing me, And they take it out, yes, you're going to have to lose the thing killing you. 
So yes, there is a cost to being in Christ. Yes, your sin eventually will die. God will put it to death. God is going to sanctify his people upon whom he has affection. And that's going to cost them their sin. Nobody's really happy about that. I don't know why. That's amazing. I mean, do you grasp what that means? The sin that so easily entangles us now. The sin that actually we have really hard problems defeating. I don't know if you've ever fought your sin. If you fought your sin, you know how strong it is, how hard it is to defeat, how easily you can fall back into it and you're just get after you finish sinning and you're like, aha, how the heck did I fall into that again? There will be a day when you'll be free from it. And to be clear, God is working on it just as clearly as he opposes sinfulness, as as he opposes injustice. He opposes the injustice in our own hearts, even when he loves us and will defeat it. Hebrews 12, 6 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's not a matter of hatred. That's love. That's astounding love. But there is a problem here. I, I teach you as a basis, if you're going to read a text of scripture, if you talk to me about you know, how to read Bible, I will tell you, you have to read it in context and you have to keep in mind the audience for which it's written. Hosea chapter 10 is not written for St. John's Newfoundland and specifically Calvary Baptist Church directly. Just putting that out there. It was written for the people of Israel in about the 5th century BC. It's not directly for us. So why am I saying this stuff as if it's available to us? Well, glad you asked. See, we are not the people of Israel in and of our own selves. I wasn't born Jewish. But read the New Testament. See, there's more to the book than the book of Hosea. There was a historical event that happened A guy named Jesus, who turns out was God, is God, lived a life that we couldn't live. He lived the righteous, just life that we needed to live, and he lived it perfectly. And then at the end of his life, a life that came to an end very shortly, very quickly, he was crucified on a cross. Dying the most excruciating, and as Adam pointed out uh, last week, that actually means from the cross, he faced excruciating pain that we deserved. So that if we have faith in him, we can be counted as part of his people. People on whom God has set his affection. Not merely a people but also a family. We've been given the right to be called children of God, but don't don't trust me for that one. Let's just turn to the Bible on that. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're grafted into the people of God by faith in Christ Jesus. It's kind of a side point here, but look at Romans chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. But if some of the branches were broken off, namely people of Israel who were rebellious, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. I mean, I don't have enough time to go through all of uh, Romans 9, 10, 11, and 12 to explain how this works. But for the moment, understand that if you are in Jesus Christ, you are of the people of God. You've been grafted in. The promise that Hosea that God gives to the people of God through Hosea, that he will correct them, that he will bring them to holiness, that he will help them to move away from their sinfulness and into uh, life, that's for you. But again, John chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. I've used this a couple of times already, but I, I love the verses. He, meaning Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called, I think it's on the screen, can you read it with me? Children of God. Did you get that? Children of God. Children, as verse 13 says, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God sets his affections upon us. If only we would put our faith in Jesus Christ. And that, do, that isn't just a mere believism whereby you get to I don't know, just live your life as it used to be. You still live in death and destruction. You still wallow in the evils of sin and death. No, he saves us from that. He calls us out from that. He gives us the ability to be called children of God. And as children of God, we are being made into heirs. We're being made righteous from one degree of glory to another. We are being prepared for righteous works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just by way of uh, final and just my actually one point of application. There are four points, as I said. There is a reason that God doesn't defeat evil right now. That reason is that we are evil. That we have injustice, and injustice is the active result of trusting in the wrong things, which we do. 
God defeats injustice. God, but God, in defeating injustice, the injustice in our own hearts, he corrects his people. And in Christ, we are God's children, which leaves the only application. It is right to fear the wrath of God. It is right to fear God. He is God. But in that fear, turn to the place that where comfort and safety is to be found. Brothers, sisters, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are acceptable to God. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sin is handled. And where your effects of sin are taken on the cross in Christ, the very habits of sin are being remade by the Spirit of God who actively wages war against, against the sin in your own lives. If you today, this morning are a believer, there is no reason to fear to turn to God. There is no reason to, as the church that I grew up in would say, cloak or dissemble your evils before God. There's no reason to hide yourself before God. You're saved. And his only desire is to make you healthy. Yes, that means he will cut the cancer of sin out of your life. But not many people want to keep their cancer. Just saying. And if you're not a believer today, if for some reason you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, there is no reason for you to run today. His arms are open. He has done everything historically, clearly. In the Bible, we can see it. He's done everything to reconcile us to himself. And so all you need to do is place your faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray you do that today. And if you want to do that, if you want to talk about it, if you don't know what that means, if you need me to explain it more, talk to me after the service. I'm around. Uh, Any of the elders would be happy to tell you. In fact, most of your Christian friends would be happy to talk to you about it. But friends, flee Flee from sin. Flee from the world that's dying. Flee from injustice. But flee not away from God, but flee to Jesus Christ in repentance. Let's pray. Lord God, I don't know if I was just flapping my gums for about half an hour up here. I pray that by your spirit, whatever needs to be said to the hearts of your people here, gathered here, was said. I pray that people would be redeemed by your word. I pray that your people would be washed through your word into righteousness. Oh God, please, please do a mighty work, a work that I could never do through words alone, but that you can do through the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray that people will be quickened, that they will come to love you. 
I pray that we would flee from sin. I pray that we would not merely free from, flee from sin into our own self-righteousness, but flee specifically to your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done, and thank you, Lord, for the things you continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.